So, six weeks on the Buddha. And um, actually, this talk, I hope, will set the scene. Because I'm going to do two things in this talk. I'm going to talk about the Buddha's journey up to his enlightenment. At which point, we strictly speaking, shouldn't call him the Buddha. Because he wasn't the Buddha yet. That happened when he gained enlightenment. Um, I'm going to call him Gotama. And I'll explain why. And secondly, I'm going to talk about the historical Buddha. We see Buddhas on shrines, such as this one. Um, We think about what does the Buddha mean for me. We go for refuge to the Buddha. And in those ways, we're we're thinking about what the Buddha represents. We're thinking about the Buddha in a timeless way. And it's easy to forget that what we're talking about with the Buddha, in the first instance, the very first thing we can say, is it's a person, a man, flesh, blood, and all the rest of it, who lived as we live. And if we're going to engage with the Buddha, and I would say if we're going to engage with the Buddha on any level, including the timeless and archetypal, we need to start by imagining the historical Buddha. And it has to be an act of imagination. We don't know anything about anything, for sure. We don't know anything about history, for sure. We don't know why Napoleon or Adolf Hitler did what they did. And when we get to a figure like the Buddha, who's two and a half thousand years ago, um, and the records of whose life come to us through texts which were passed over several hundred years uh, from mouth to mouth in a process of oral recitation, it's harder still to know. Now, I think we can, if we look at the texts that have come down to us about the Buddha's life, if we look among them, we can start to reconstruct the world he lived in. We can, uh, and we can, you can go and visit the places as well. You can see the sky, you can walk the earth, you can smell the air that he saw, smelt, etc. Um, but there's still, uh, we still need to use our imagination We need to bring that world alive and learn about it. The Buddha was very often answering questions that arose within society he was born in. And those aren't necessarily the questions that arise for us in our society. There may be comparable questions and there may be overlaps, but it's it's valuable to learn something specifically about where he lived. So um, on the theme of imagining, I'm going to read, and I'm only going to do this a little bit, um, I'll read a little bit that I've written for my book. And if you like, you can close your eyes and just get the picture. It's morning in Kapilavastu, capital of Shakya, and already a fierce sun beats down on the town's ramparts. Beyond are fragile bamboo shelters where the poorest families with, live with their animals and women in bright saris squat over cooking pots. Then come open fields. They're parched now and the earth is cracked, as if wrinkled by age, and the winding Rohini River has been reduced to a sluggish trickle. Yellow dust, scuffed by cattle, hangs over the land and settles on everything, the plants, the trees, the hair, the skin. But for all the dust, this is fertile land, divided by ditches into fields of rice, wheat, mustard, Farmers who speckle the scene in muddied cotton clothes cannot rest from their work despite the heat 
and incessant flies until the midday sun makes labour impossible. They stoop over their limp crops, dig irrigation channels and rest beneath the sal and mango trees as sweat ripples over their furrowed skin. I want to just uh, move inside the city. So that's a scene outside it. But let's imagine what life would be like in couple of us two. Um, in fact, I won't read anymore. I'll just, uh, I'll just evoke it. So imagine a, uh, a medieval city or a, a pre-modern city. Um, the Shukins were a tribal people that with um, their own rituals, their own very distinctive culture. If you looked across those ramparts, heaped from earth, and perhaps with bricks along the top, you'd see a sea of thatch. That the uh, the buildings would be wattle and daub, and uh, they'd probably have had brightly coloured painted uh, gable ends. Through the middle of the town and crossing it are two main roads. These are trade roads. One goes um, one goes west to the capital of the country of which. Shakya is a province. The capital is called Shravasti. And uh, there's continual procession along this trade road of soldiers, um, of tradesmen, of merchants, and of wandering religious people. Another road goes through, um, it skirts uh, an area of wilderness and eventually gets to the lands we now call Nepal and Tibet. The road goes south south through uh, a series of uh, other tribal homelands to the great, city, the great uh, kingdom of Magadha, um, which is south of the Ganges. And the Ganges is the great artery through this whole region. Uh, boats sail from there to southern India and come back laden with jewels and spices. And uh, Varanasi, or Benares, the dead, go to die beside the holy river and to bathe themselves in its sacred waters. So this is a very rich, um, growing civilization. Most of it, in fact, is forest or wilderness. It's impassable. And the uh, settlements are built along the rivers. Gradually, these, uh, the settled areas are expanding as people with their newfangled wooden uh, um, iron plows are clearing land for, for cultivation. And they're building towns. The largest towns are quite big, 100,000 people in the two major cities of the region. But Kapilavastu is a provincial town. And it's here that uh, a young man uh, is living at the time when we start our story. So his name, he's a member of the, a clan called the Gotamas. And so we call him Gotama. In effect, that's his surname. We actually don't know his first name. Um, tradition calls him Siddhartha, but in the earlier scriptures, the part which we call the uh, Pali Canon, the Canon of texts in the Pali language, he's never called that. So you may not, even those of you who are quite experienced may not know, there is no evidence that this person was ever called Siddhartha. So we call him Gotama. Um, and he was born of a, uh, a wealthy uh, father, his father was probably the, the was a chief minister, or the chieftain, we could say, of this province. Um, he, Gotama himself was a member of the warrior caste, and the warriors 
gather together in the uh, meeting hall at the centre of the town and they elected their leader. And Gotama's father, Sudodana, had been the leader of, of the people for a number of years when the story starts and he managed to stay leader despite the intense political intrigue that surrounded him for uh, at least until Gotama was 35 or 36. So his father is, father is a wily political operator. And this is where Gotama is born. Now, a lot of legends surround his birth. Um, his mother, we believe, was called Maya or Maya Devi. And she seems to have died when Gotama was very young. He was brought up by his stepmother, who, as it happens, was also his aunt, um, because his father had married two sisters. So his stepmother and his aunt, you see what I mean? Um, and he was brought up in a kind of uh, luxury. So you may be familiar with some of the legends that surround the Buddha, of being born into a palace, surrounded by uh, dancing maidens and all this sort of thing. Now, there's some evidence for that. He probably did have a kind of aristocratic upbringing, but it's very easy to um, imagine him as a figure from romantic Indian legend, when the, the, the reality was probably a little more humble, a little bit more mundane than that. Um, he, the Kshatriyas were warriors, but they weren't allowed to fight wars, almost certainly, because they'd been conquered or subsumed within this larger kingdom called Kosala. They weren't actually allowed to go off to fight. They trained in martial arts that they would never use. The reality was that they were, um, they were uh, farmers. So they're in a society which is going from a very simple uh, agrarian kind of base to something much more complicated. And one of the suttas, the texts, I've used this word, so I won't be able to stop myself falling into it. It's a Pali name for these texts that we read that uh, we, in which we hear about the Buddha. It gives a, a list of the kind of uh, variety of occupations that there were within the, the cities of this culture. Elephant trainers, horse trainers, charioteers, archers, standard bearers, camp marshals, supply corps officers, high royal officers, commandos, military heroes, warriors clad in armour or leather, domestic slaves, confectioners, barbers, bath attendants, cooks, garland makers, laundrymen, weavers, basket makers, oh, more, yes, basket makers, potters, calculators and accountants. In one of the uh, sources, I was talking about this with Vidyamar the other day, uh, the Buddha gives uh, some advice on avoiding, um, to pay as little tax as possible. Because if you let them, the Rajas will take all your money. And the Buddha, actually, one of the interesting things, the themes that comes back again and again, he seems to really admire craftsmen, people who are skilled at their craft. He, he probably grew up surrounded by um, uh, farmers, but also people who you know, were doing all of those things that I just, in the list I just read out. He said, as irrigators um, channel water, as fletchers carve arrows, a wise man uh, tames himself. So carving or skill was a, a, a key metaphor for the Buddha in terms of what he was trying to do and what he was telling other people to do. So he was proposing 
a spiritual life as a process of self-fashioning, making yourself in the way that a craftsman makes, um, makes the things that he makes. So I imagine that the Buddha grew up, Gotama grew up, uh, really admiring the, these people. They, they were the, the, the most intelligent people within his society. But what was there for the Buddha himself? What was there for Gotama? Um, he was an ambitious man. He probably, I, there are legends that, that say that he had a completely secluded upbringing, secluded from um, everything in his culture. You know, he was just living in this palace and he never got out. And uh, then he saw an old man, a sick man, a, a, a dead man, and he, he, he suddenly understood that there was suffering in the world. Well, personally, I don't believe a word of that. And I don't see any evidence uh, for us to believe any of it. So forget it. Um, this is no he obviously had insights into those things but the the idea that he had in that way there's no reason to think that he did Um, the uh, and the point is that if you imagine him living secluded in a palace and never going out to see the outside world you have to imagine that he knew nothing about his society and therefore that none of the forces at work within his society or even his culture were relevant to why he left the palace. But if you think that he was actually a full member of his society, then you, can, then you start to get more evidence and more of a sense of what it was that propelled him to leave it. So in a text called the Vinaya, which is a monastic code, um, there's a dialogue between... Um, well, the, the, the essence of, between two of Gotama's cousins. And one of them is persuading the other that there is a good reason for him to leave home and join the monastic order that Gotama has by this time founded. And the, in doing so, he describes exactly what life was like for a young man in Gotama's position. So this is a little reading from the Vinaya about what, what these people actually had to do, what Gotama, we should imagine, had to do. First, you have to get your fields ploughed. Then you have to get them sown. Then you have to get the water led down over them. Then you have to get get the water led off again. Then you have to get the weeds pulled up. Then you have to get the crop reaped. Then you have to get it away again. Then you have to get it arranged into bundles. Then you have to get it trodden out. Then you have to get the straw picked out. Then you have to get all the chaff removed. You have to get it winnowed, get the harvest garnered, and then you have to do just the same next year and the same all over again the year after that. The work is never over. (coughs) So that, I think, is a much more telling description of what Gotama's life would have been like. And there's one other... And what that's describing is the tedium of farming, um, being bound to the cycles of the agricultural year. You have to do all of this stuff just to get food. And then when you've done it, you have to do it all over again. And then you have to do it all over again. So it's this uh, cycle of life is something that's very important in the way that Gotama describes what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with the worldly life. Um, it doesn't seem to go anywhere. It doesn't seem to mean anything. That just in the same uh, text, just shortly afterwards, there's a description 
there's an, there's an account by a someone called Bandula, who seems to be uh, another one of the people in a position rather like Suddhodana <coughs> among the Shakyans, possibly his successor. And Bandula describes the, the position that uh, Suddhodana would have had as a chieftain and that Gotama had to look forward to. He couldn't go out of the palace without his bodyguard. He couldn't leave Shakya without an armed attendant. Even in the palace, he had to have guards around him all the time. So um, this sounds rather like a modern politician with his security detail. And Bandala's expressing um, his constant insecurity as the chieftain of, of this rather unruly tribal republic. So if we put those two together, you know, the, the continual agricultural responsibilities and the political tensions, we get some sense of what Gotama's life was like. He evoked that life in a, another, um, another passage, which I'm going to read. And this, this is something that he said, uh, apparently, according to some, some traditions, to the Shakyans themselves, when he was telling them why it was he'd left home. Um, Fear is born from arming oneself, he says. Just see how people fight. I'll tell you about the dreadful fear that caused me to shake all over. Seeing creatures flopping around like fish in water too shallow, so hostile to one another. Seeing this, I became afraid. This world completely lacks essence. It trembles in all directions. I longed to find myself a place unscathed, but I could not see it. I became completely distraught. But then I discerned here a thorn, oops, <laughs> a thorn lodged deep in my heart and hard to see. It's only when pierced by this thorn that one runs in all directions. So if that thorn is taken out, one does not run and settles down. So this young man, who probably um, attended the uh, court sessions with his father, involved with him in the intensely difficult political process of trying to run Shakya. He saw this, the court society of um, fish uh, flopping around and fighting each other as if the water was too shallow. And he saw the repetitive life that was in store for him in uh, the way that um, his, his friends and his acquaintances lived. So he left home. Um, exactly why he left home, we don't know. And again, there are many legends about this. This is where the old man, the sick, sick man, the corpse and so on come in. But we're pretty, we can be pretty sure that that actually didn't happen. The main text that we have to get a sense of Gotama's life is in this period is something called the Arya Pariyasana Sutra, or the Noble Quest. And he talks about it in very, um, very, 
general terms. He says that he reflected, um, I being myself subject to birth, he reflects that what he's doing is he's seeking other things that are also subject to birth, aging, sickness, sorrow and defilement. And he, he says that what he needs to do is he needs to find something which is unaging, unailing, deathless, sorrowless and undefiled. So he sees that the world around him can't really satisfy him. Um, there's some deep existential malaise within this young man, Gotama, and he feels he must find some alternative to it. Um, again, there's, there's a, a very romantic scene which is depicted in which uh, the young Gotama leaves his family. He slips out of the forest in the middle of the, out of the palace in the middle of the night and uh, he just can't resist one heartbreaking glance back at his wife who's cradling their little son um, with her hand. Again, there's really no reason to think that that actually happened. What the Arya Pariyasana Sutta says is that um, while still young, a black-haired young man endowed with the blessing of youth in the prime of life, though my mother and father wished otherwise and wept tearful faces, I shaved off my hair and beard, put on the yellow robe and went forth from the home, from the home life into homelessness. So there seems to be some big family to-do going on in, the, in that particular account. Um, some big contention between him and his father and his mother. So the idea that he slipped out without their knowing doesn't seem to hold water. And what he did was he joined, um, he became a wandering holy man, or a seeker after truth, um, what we can call a shramana or a paravajika, a wanderer. And the wanderers, as he says, had left behind all the security, all the comforts, all the certainties, and all of the uh, cyclical, repetitive patterns of the household life. And they hit the road. The path is actually a very important... You know, we talk about the threefold way, uh, the path. Well, when Gotama stepped out of the palace, he literally started walking along a path. Uh, most people would never have left their hometown, and, and it's quite possible that he never did. But uh, having decided to leave home, he, he, the path became his life. He loved wandering. He talked about this again and again. The wanderers usually lived on the edge of uh, settlements, either on the edge of villages or on the edge of big towns. But they, um, they also stayed in the wilderness. And we th when we think of wilderness, when we think of the Buddha in the wilderness, we imagine uh, a pleasant period. How long have I got, Ranaguna? 20 minutes? Good, okay, halfway. So he's left, he's left the palace and he's going into the wilderness. So we think of, the, of staying in the wilderness as a pleasant stay in the country, yes? Uh, a nice bit of uh, recreation. But that wasn't the way the Indians saw it. They divided the world between um, what they called settlement, Ghana, and wilderness, Aranya. And Aranya was a place you really didn't want to know, want to go, unless uh, you were a tribesman, a bandit, um, or a nutty holy man. 
only, only the mad people would go there. The, the merchants had to go through the wilderness to get from one place to the other, but it was dangerous. You could be attacked by wild animals. Uh, you'd almost certainly be stung by gadflies and mosquitoes um, and then could get ill and you could die. And um, you, you were just in an alien territory which was filled really filled. It was a home of the demonic spirits which haunted the edges of all the settlements. And uh, assuaging them was a really important concern for the religion. You know, they perf- the Indians performed sacrifices to keep these demonic um, spirits happy, <coughs> to keep them at bay. Now just to jump forward, later on, Gotama became a wilderness master. He, he immersed himself in the wilderness. We get glimpses of him in the cities. In the places where petrifying serpents dwell, the lightning flashes and the rain god roars. There he sits in the blinding terror of the deepest night, the one who has conquered fear. So we get these glimpses of Gotama, the wilderness master, an uncanny, unearthly presence, who's taken the forces of the wild, of the, of, uh, of the forest, into himself and transmuted them. But we can imagine that as he sets off into the world of the wanderers who travel through the wilderness, he's afraid. In fact, he talks about fear and dread being the, the emotions that he associated with those wild spaces. So it seems that he didn't stay there very long in the wilderness, if he stayed there at all at this point. He may just have gone to the local monastery. That's, I'll come back to that in a moment. But um, the tradition says that he went south to the great metropolis of Rajagaha. Um, and the reason that he went there was that was the main centre for the... Um, for these wandering holy men. So they were kind of freelance, although they often um, joined one of, one of the groups of holy men that clustered around gurus or shramanas, the, the teachers of the age. Um, they, they stayed in parks and they developed a, a whole array of philosophies, each one uh, violently opposed to the others. Some of these were part of the mainstream tradition of Indian religion, which we can call Brahmanism, which um, grew out of ancient texts called Vedas and manifested in um, sacrificial rites that were part of everyone's life in in that society. But others had rejected that. So there's a whole uh, world of free thinkers, uh, rationalists, um, nutcases, people who like to dress up as in all sorts of weird clothes in, in wet wear tree bark, to um, some people who believed that the, the highest religious practice was to act like a dog or a cow. Um, and if you sat down, and Gotama actually describes this in one of the sitters, they would come and curl up next to you and put their head in your lap. But all sorts of ideas, but they're questing the truth. They're ser- all of them are searching for some kind of answer to their existence. Um, one of the, um, the one, these wanderers describes his life to Gotama in a sutta. 
He says, I stay around monastic parks and attend gatherings. After the meal, when I've finished my breakfast, it's my custom to wander from park to park and from garden to garden. There I see ascetics and Brahmins engaged in discussion for the sake of defending their ideas and condemning those held by other people. So this was an intellectual whirlwind and Gautama really didn't like it. We can be pretty sure about this. People arguing for the sake of argument. And he says, the debaters start disputes, calling each other fools, seeking praise and declaring themselves experts. If they're criticised, they feel depressed, get angry and look for flaws in their opponents' arguments. Meanwhile, those who win praise feel elated and that is their downfall because they swell and grow arrogant. So he saw all of this going on around him and he had to make sense of it. He had to find his own way. He had to, to, to figure out uh, what was the right way forward for him. So later on in his life, he encountered other people who were in the same position. And he gave him such a good argument, such a good um, way of uh, approaching this, this, this problem. You know, who should you follow? Which of these many ways of, uh, of kinds of belief should you adhere to? That I think he must have learnt this in his, through his own experience. So this is a sutta which has actually become very well known, addressed to people from the Kalama uh, clan, hence the Kalama Sutta. And he tells them, don't believe something just because it's part of a tradition or has been handed down over many generations or because people generally believe it's true. It's not enough that a teaching is found in a holy book. Sometimes people believe a teaching because a speaker is very convincing or because... Their teacher tells them it's true. And he continues, don't be persuaded by specious reasoning and sophistry, or even by logical arguments and reasoned consideration. And beware of the temptation to believe something because you are used to thinking that way. So all of these reasons are put forward. You know, this is why, you, this is how you can know this is true. But he says, no, that isn't the way to, to figure things out. What he says is, when you know for yourselves that these things are good, in other words, from your experience, that wise people support them and that practicing them leads to happiness and benefit, then you should follow them and put them into practice. If you find they're harmful, you should reject them. So I imagine Gotama in uh, Rajgaha going through this kind of process. And what happens is he sees the philosophers and he's, he's really not interested in their ideas that the world, you know, this is a relationship between cause and effect. This is the nature of the soul. He wants to experience it for himself. So what he does, and we, this we can be fairly sure of, he joined in with uh, the meditative traditions he found a guru, his name was Alara Kalama. He studied with him. And this guru, again, we can be reasonably sure of this, was uh, following the teachings that you can find in texts that we know as the Upanishads. And um, essentially, these are mystical texts which teach that the meaning of uh, life is to be found by um, becoming one with Brahma, one with God. 
and that within each person there is a, an Atman, a soul. And the great insight of the Upanishads is that this soul that you can find through uh, a process of meditation is the same as God. Atman is Brahman. That's what the, uh, the Upanishads say. So this is the tradition that Gautama was trained in. Um, I don't need that. He, what he did was he um, immersed himself in the meditative teaching. So, first of all, he was just taught the words. He was taught to recite words that were probably from the Upanishads. He says that he became completely fluent in them. So far as words and reasoning can go, uh, he became completely fluent. So imagine that... Uh, Yes, so imagine that there he is, um, completely fluent in, in these teachings. And he turns, to, he goes to Alara Kalama and he says, well, but I want to realize them for myself. So his teacher sees that he's got promise and he gives him an initiation, a mystical initiation into these secret teachings that are only passed from mouth to mouth, from guru to disciple. And Gotama goes through a process of meditation in which he envisages that um, as his mind becomes more concentrated, he is in fact passing through the successive levels of existence, from the earth level to the uh, water level to the space level to consciousness level, and eventually he arrives at a state of incredible mystical oneness called the stage of nothingness, about which... Almost nothing can be said, although actually quite a lot is said in the various suttas. Um, and this nothingness, Alara Kalama tells him, is God. This is the truth. Or at least this is as far towards the truth as you can get before you die. Full union will come after death. But Gautama comes out of this meditation, describes to Alara Kalama what's happened. Alara Kalama says... You've, that's it, you've cracked it. You know everything that I know. Please come and share um, my uh, teaching with me, uh, uh, the leadership of my group with me. Become my fellow, fellow guru. And Gautama says, no. And that's very interesting that he says no. There's something in that, um, that experience that isn't enough, that isn't sufficient for him. And he rejects it. And what it seems to be is that it was just another experience. Everything that he was working against was a sense of um, being caught in a cycle where one experience produced another experience, produced another experience, and they were therefore impermanent, unsatisfactory. He wanted to have something that was beyond experience. It wasn't just a mystical experience, but where he actually saw the truth. You know, he wasn't just having a, a, a mind-blowing time, but he saw something that was real and that would give him a fundamentally different way of being in the world. So the problem with mystical experiences, so far as Gautama is concerned, is 
when they finish, you're not in them anymore. Where are they then? He found another teacher whose name was Utika Ramaputta, and he had who had a, a, a higher teaching. Gautama mastered this, even though Utika himself, uh, in fact, couldn't couldn't get to this level of meditation. His teacher Rama could, but Utika couldn't. So uh, Utika uh, told him how to get to the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception. But this wasn't good enough for Gautama. He, uh, he saw that even this, even something which seemed to go beyond the experience, in other words, you're not perceiving and you're not not perceiving, this wasn't enough. You may be getting mind boggled, that's probably a good sign. Okay, there's, there's the next period you, you probably are familiar with. Um, I'm not going to say too much about it. Is when uh, the Buddha Gotama tried a different approach, which was to deny his flesh and uh, to, to punish himself, to engage in self-torture. There are wonderful, elaborate descriptions of all of the austerities that he performed, and these are still going on in India. You see, guys who've been doing this for 30 years, or this, or um, barely eat, and so on. It really is part of the Indian mystical tradition and it seems that Gotama um, tried it in order to punish the flesh, to um, deny the flesh, maybe free the spirit in some way by doing that. But he realised that wasn't getting him anywhere. There's two things I want to to bring in before I finish, before we get to the Enlightenment. So the first uh, insight that he has is a memory. He remembers as a child, sitting under a rose apple tree in a beautiful day, in nature, and naturally, not by force and not by uh, propelling himself into some mystical experience, but naturally, a feeling of intense happiness, concentration, bliss, awareness fills him. This is a childhood memory, which is also maybe significant. It's not something that he set out to do in his battle with life as an adult. And and it shows him that there's a different approach to spiritual life. Happiness is fine. In fact, this kind of natural flourishing that he experienced in that moment provides him with a key which eventually leads him towards enlightenment. From this point on, what he's trying to do in all of the different accounts, and there are quite a few, is he's trying to understand his experience. He's not trying to make it into something else. He's trying to go more deeply into it. That does involve concentration, but mostly involves just seeing what's happening in his mind, just seeing what the nature of his mind is. Now, one of the suttas that we have that describes this very, very vividly is the sutta that uses the phrase fear and dread. So it seems that what the Buddha did, what Gautama did, is he went back into the forest. He left behind whatever group he'd been with, whatever companions he'd been with. And these terrifying wild places that haunted the whole culture he was in, where the demons lived and the spirits, he would just go there and he would see what happened. So this is a really fascinating um, text. He says to himself, 
What if I were to stay in the sort of places that are awe-inspiring and make your hair stand on end, such as park shrines, forest shrines and tree shrines? Perhaps I would get to see that fear and terror. And while I was staying there, a wild animal would come, or a bird would make a twig fall, or wind would rustle the fallen leaves. The thought would occur to me, is this it? Is this the fear and terror coming? And then the thought occurred to me, why do I just keep waiting for fear and terror? In other words, what am I doing? What if I were to subdue fear and terror in whatever state they come? In other words, just let it happen and see what happens. So when fear and terror came, when I was walking back and forth, I would not stand or, or sit or lie down. I would keep walking back and forth until I had subdued that fear and terror. So, and he, he continues in that way, whatever he's doing, he just stays in this really terrifying place. Whatever he's feeling, he stays with the experience. He just lets it... Um, what, what's your question? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we'll come on to that in our, in our discussion groups, but a lot of this you can take on a lot of different levels, symbolically or really, realistically. That's a Baya Baraba Sutta. It's in the Majjhima number th- uh, 13. So, there are a number of accounts of, of what the Buddha did. He examined his experience. He says... He really looked at it and he tried to figure out what was helpful experience, what was unhelpful. Whatever was helpful, he put his energy into. Whatever was unhelpful, he um, tried to let go of. And eventually, after a long period of meditation, we have this beautiful description in the Arya Pariyasana Sutta. He says, I wandered by stages through the Magadhan country. That's one of these kingdoms, until eventually I arrived at Sena Nigama, near Uravela, near a village called Uravela. There I saw an agreeable place of ground, a delightful grove with a clear flowing river with pleasant smooth banks and nearby a village for alms uh, resort. And I considered this place will serve for striving of a clansman intent on striving. And I sat down there thinking, this place will serve for striving. So this is the Buddha sitting down now under the, the place that we call the Bodhi tree, under a tr- spreading tree. There are many stories, many accounts, many legends of what, he, what happened there. But what I'm going to do to finish off is I'm just going to um, read through some of the thoughts that came to the Buddha after he was enlightened. I'm not going to try and go into what it was that happened, but this, in a certain way, is about as good a um, description of that enlightenment experience as, as exists. I considered this Dhamma, this truth that I have attained, is profound, hard to see, hard to understand, peaceful and sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning, 
subtle, to be experienced by the wise. And then he reflects to himself, but this generation delights in clinging, takes delight in clinging, rejoices in clinging. It's hard for such a generation to see this truth, namely conditionality, dependent arising. And it's hard to see this truth, namely the stilling of formations, the relinquishing of all attachments, the destruction of craving, dispassion, cessation, nirvana. Thank you.